0: So this morning we're coming back to the Gospel of John. We're taking, uh, we've been off of this uh, sermon series for the last four weeks as we were looking at the Gospel of the News for the Lost, Found, City, and World. And as we jump back into the Gospel of John, we're coming into one of the most famous passages in the Gospel of John. One that you've probably read or heard before. Um, even people without a church background know this story, that like, he who is without sin casts the first stone. It's almost spilled out even beyond religious uh, <laughs> settings to become a cultural touchstone that people know. But we're going to look at this passage this morning in the Gospel of John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. So turn in your Bibles, it's printed for you in your bulletin. John 8, this is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. At dawn, you people. sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teachers, this woman was caught in a of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you see? They were using this question as a trick in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus didn't and started to cry on the ground with his fear. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. And he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he rose from the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older one first, older, older ones first until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture, that in him we get a glimpse of your compassion and your grace. So in these moments, Lord, let us look into what this passage is. Shows us about you. And because of what it shows us about you, what it shows us about us in you, teach us, the Lord, as our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone, well, this is a silly question. Anyone in here play the Monopoly? Of course you play the Monopoly. It's probably the most popular board game in history, right? And And I'm on a nine-year-old my car. And I don't know which one, I used the car. I love the little car. You might have used the top hat as a chair. But Monopoly. Probably the most popular board game in history. But did you know this, little fact toy? That the game of Monopoly was actually designed to teach you that that way of life, of trying to win by making other people go bankrupt, of trying to win by collecting the most money, it was a game meant to teach that that way of life doesn't work. Monopoly was created as a game to show us that chasing after money is few, that That is foolishness. That's why Monopoly was created. It was like a big object lesson. It was meant to show that living in competition with other people, trying to snatch up property and money at the expense of others is a no-win situation all around. But of course, that doesn't keep us from trying to dominate people at Monopoly, when we play, right? As soon as we start playing Monopoly, we don't we, we turn off our compassion and it's like, I gotta get a place, I'm we'll gonna put a hotel there, I'm gonna we'll charge them these taxes, I'm gonna get all the money. You're going to In our passage today, we need a group of men that are trying to win at a game where there's no winners. We need a group of men that are trying to win at Monopoly. And let me make it clear, in any case it's not, to play a religion. In the sense of trying to establish yourself in your own righteousness by your actions is to play a game where there are no winners. To play a game of religion is to play a game where you cannot win. And even if you're the best monopoly player in history, and in the sense of trying to give them all the money you can and all the property you can, or even or to carry it over, if you're playing the game of religion and you've won all the, the uh, admiration of people. You're a good moral person. And that's all it is. You're still playing a losing game. You're winning at a game you cannot win. And in the
1: process, you'll only wear yourself
0: out, miss God in the process, and you'll wear other people out as well. And use them. Now, this passage today is usually called the woman caught in adultery. If you have a Bible in front of you, that's actually probably the, the It focuses on the woman that's dragged before Jesus here. Uh, but I actually don't like that title. I think it misses the point. Um, in fact, I saw somebody recently say we should start calling this passage The Men Calling Hypocrisy, which that's a better title <laughs> as far as what's going on here. But an even better title to, to kind of get ahead of ourselves is The Baffling Grace of Jesus. Because this is not a passage about whether adults is a bigger sin. It's not. It's a passage about the baffling grace of Jesus that breaks into the game that we cannot win to free us. That's what this is about. In this passage, there's not one great sinner, the woman who's dressed before Jesus. And Jesus tells them to be nice to her because they're not perfect either. Now this flips our head, flips our understanding, our assumptions on their head from Jesus, both for those who fail at it in very obvious ways and those who are really good at it. How it's a no-man situation. So, look back at our passage. Notice in verse 2, it says Jesus is in Jerusalem. So, if you remember, it was a month ago, so um, we might not know. Where this takes place in the Gospel of John, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Feast of Tabernacles, of all the festivals in the Jewish calendar year, was the part of it was like Labor Day and New Year's Eve and a harvest festival just wrapped up in the morning. It was, the of, it was at the end of the harvest season. People had just finished their work. They were done with all the harvesting. And so they were coming into the city and they were going to celebrate. It was a festival designed for celebration and to thank God for the abundance that had just come in the harvest. So it's all part of it. And it goes on for a week. In fact, it goes on for eight days. People arrive and they set up and they actually camp out and build their own tents that they lived in uh, while they were there outside the city. And they would camp out basically for a week and feast and eat and celebrate and have fun. And on the eighth day, that's when they left town. That's actually what uh, day it is here when Jesus is, when this happens. So this is the last day. People are prepping to leave to go home, and Jesus arrives in the temple courts and sits down to teach the people. Now, the last thing that had happened in John 7, immediately before this passage, is a failed attempt by the authorities to arrest Jesus. They had sent some deputies into the crowd and they told them, We need to grab Jesus because he's causing too much of an uproar. But they weren't able to do it. And so they came back and reported to the religious authorities that no one has ever taught what this man teaches. we, We couldn't grab him. And so what happens is Jesus hasn't fled the city in the of that, And the authorities, they decide, well, we can't arrest him publicly, so let's set a trap. So instead of arresting him, what they're trying to do is make him look foolish in front of the crowd. They're trying to set a trap, as it says in the passage, to have a basis to accuse him. And here's the trap. Jesus has shown himself to be two things— the first one is this. He's shown himself to be someone who is incredibly gracious, especially to people rejected by others. So they know Jesus is incredibly gracious to people. But at the same time, Jesus has shown himself who cares deeply, and to be a person who cares deeply about what is right, about doing the right thing. Remember, the first time he's in Jerusalem in the Gospel of John, he cleanses the temple. The poor were being pushed out worship of God, Jesus comes in and throws the tables over and chases the money changers out so that the, the poor, those who have taken advantage of, can have access to the temple worship. So Jesus is showing himself as someone who's super compassionate to people and someone who cares deeply about what's wrong. So this is what they've done. This is the trap they've played. On the last night of the festival, they found someone doing something wrong. They went looking in the city and said, this is the last night of a week-long party. We're going to find someone who's doing something wrong. And then drag this person, this woman, in front of Jesus. And in their mind, he, Jesus is either going to show himself as harsh, so not as compassionate as he's been in the past, or he's going to show himself as someone who doesn't care about what's right. This is the trap. Either way, Jesus is going to look foolish in front of the crowd. And they're going to have a basis for accusing him. So they set the trap. They go into the corners of the city where they know things happen. Imagine. And they come upon a couple of people on a sexual encounter. A couple of them maybe, committing adultery. And the picture is of someone who's been caught in the middle of the act. She was probably dragged there, at least partially naked, actually, in front of the crowd, and made to stand in front of this group of people. And as verse 2 says, it's all the people. This is a huge crowd. It doesn't mean literally every individual person, but this is the picture of a lot of people standing there. And this woman, in the midst of Jesus' teaching, has been dragged in front of this group of people and made to stand there. Of course, we have to wonder, Where's the man? They dragged one person who can't commit adultery by yourself. Where's the man in the process? He's not there. And we have to wonder how in the world they were able to just automatically find someone committing adultery. The Did they just walk in each house until so they found people and check their marriage licenses, or, or, or what was it? It seems to me they actually knew where to go. They knew where things happened. Which shows to me, at least, that these men who were winning a monopoly, they obviously didn't care about people. They didn't care about the people involved at all. They didn't care about the problem of adultery. They were content, like so many powerful men, to simply find and use this woman for her, their own purposes. They didn't actually care. This woman was an object that could drag him in and use as a trap. So the trap is laid, and in verse 4, they run up and with all the excitement and hurry of someone who thinks they caught their enemy in an aha moment, they ask this, teacher, mockingly, teacher. This woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, why do you say?" If you're thinking of it like a movie, they dragged this woman and thrown her in front of Jesus. Answer to us, Jesus. What do you say? And Jesus responds with what must have felt a profoundly frustrating feeling to them. In the middle of their self importance, in the middle of their trap, these very important religious authorities who probably never waited on anyone to answer them, in, they watch Jesus stoop down and start scribbling in the dirt. Scoop down and start drawing in the sand. Now, we aren't told what he wrote. There's been a lot of people over the years who have tried to guess, but we aren't told, which means that what he wrote isn't important. But imagine the same. Important men that only answer to themselves, who lord their power over those underneath them. Men who say, jump, and people ask how high, demand an answer for Jesus, and Jesus begins playing in the sand. themselves in front of a big crowd. And Jesus only then stands up and running on the ground to address them, and he says this one sentence, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. They've laid their trap, The trap they think only has two answers. He shows himself as not compassionate, or he shows himself as someone who doesn't care about what's right. But Jesus gives them a third answer. Right. He doesn't obtain compassion. He doesn't abandon saying what's right. In fact, he makes it clear at the end of this passage when he tells the woman to go and leave her life of sin that he's not approving of adultery. But what he tells them is that in this question, these men are fundamentally disqualified from passing judgment on her. That sure, they've played monopoly well enough and they've gotten all the money and the property and the power, but they've still lost it. Right here, Jesus shined a light on them. And we see that they gain a moment of clarity because the men don't answer. They turn around and leave. He cuts to the heart of the issue that their game, that their trap, falls apart in the face of his answer. But tragically, they don't turn to Jesus. They slink away. They slink away in the face of his And that lives in the same two people left Jesus and the woman. Now, at this point, I don't think that the men, the the crowd slinked away and the woman thought, ah, because she's still standing there. And now she's standing there with the only person who could fit the description. (laughs) Let me use without sin, cast the first stone. She may have been more terrified at this moment than any point before. She'd been shamed in front of this crowd and used by these powerful men to try and trap Jesus, but in the end, she was guilty of adultery. They hadn't made it up. And the men were right. If you go back and look at the law of Moses, given as a national law for the people of Israel, the crime of adultery is punishable by death. It was right then. And so we have Jesus here, who is without sin, who could, conceivably, within the rules that were laid down, throw the first stone at this guilty woman. What does Jesus do? Notice verse 10. It points out that, again, Jesus straightened up. Remember, he's on the ground. He's crouching to rise When we see Jesus stand up in this passage, it's almost him standing up to pronounce judgment. So when he stood up before, he said, let the those of you who were without sin, cast the first stone. Here he stands up in judgment. What does he say against the woman? Woman? Which is not, that. I've said this before in the Gospel of John, that I actually don't like the way they translate it because it means more like man for us. This is the first time this woman is addressed directly in this passage, where she's not just someone who is talked about. He says, man, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. And then here's Jesus' judgment. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Hear me clearly this morning. Sinners are the only class of people that Jesus has come to save. The it. not the righteous. Not the religious, not the perfect or the moral, not the people who win a monopoly. Sinners. And that's good news because that's what we are. Period. Sin and its effects have impacted every part of who we are. We've disregarded God as we pray every week in our confession of sin. We've sinned against others in thought and word and deed. Now our sins are going to be as different as we are individually from one another. There's things that you struggle with that I don't. There's things that I struggle with that you don't. But if we start <laughs> ranking the sins of privacy, adultery, then it's another game. Now I love the song we sang this morning, coming Sinners. The, the, the verse that let not conscience make you linger. The idea here is don't let imperfection do The reality that you uh, you are unworthy to come before God. Let not conscience make you anger, nor fitness finally trained. Don't think there is a future time where you're going to get to a point where you can come to Jesus and have him commend you. It says all the fitness that he requires is to fill your need of him. Again, the only class of people that Jesus came to save are big, shameful sinners. That's it. The only thing that qualifies us in the sight of God to receive God's grace is that we need it. That's it. We don't have foods to jump through. And so being a big, shameful sinner puts us in the best possible position. Or to go back to the market. Realizing that it's a losing game that we're actually bad at in the first place, that's the best possible thing for us. Because it means that we can step out and stop trying to play the game we cannot win. Now, in the Old Testament, God had given the law under Moses for just that reason. It was given as a temporary thing. So it's not like we as Christians today need to look back at the law of Moses and say, okay, we need to make sure our national laws as a country, is a marriage up with these national laws that God had given. It was given as a temporary thing for a temporary nation thousands of years ago. But one of the main reasons that the law of Moses existed, one of the main reasons, is not just to give guidance on what laws to put on the books. One of the main reasons was that it was a shining light on the reality of sin. It was a shining light that said what Jesus said here, let he who is without sin cast the first stone the reality is when we measure ourselves against the law that God reveals, like even in the Ten Commandments, the centerpiece of the law of Moses, when we find ourselves coming up short, inevitably, and just like Monopoly was a game created to show that that way of life could only lead to destruction and loss, the law of Moses was partially given to help everyone realize how fallen our world is and how desperate we need God's presence. It was never given as a way for us to earn righteousness before God. It was like Monopoly. You see the rules and you say, this cannot work. This cannot work. But the religious leaders and this pastor worked. they had taken Monopoly and gotten really good at it. At least from the outside. But it's a game with nothing but losers and that's what Jesus points out to Now, friends, we live in a place that people call the Bible Belt. People talk about Christian principles and pride themselves on having the, you know, cultural cultural garbs of Southern church culture. We live in a place obsessed with image, and there's a premium place here. There's a premium place here in learning how to play the game, learning how to follow all the rules, or at least look like we follow. The idea is if you have problems, you keep them hidden. If you struggle with sins, make sure it's sins that people don't see. Be good little boys and good little girls that will turn into good Christian men and women who live moral and upright lives. But if you fail, if you fall, life happens. In a place like this, if you're shame and dragged into the light, you become an object of gossip. You become someone to be whispered about and laugh back behind your back, at best you become a cautionary tale that people tell their kids to become like him. Look out. Don't be like that. But the truth is, we can be as moral as we want to be, like the religious leaders here, who everyone would respected from the outside. We can be as moral as we want to be in the Bible Belt, and be respected, but if we miss the grace of Jesus while trying to be good, it's just winning a monopoly or winning at a game we can't win. Now, the only way for us to be transformed, the only way for us to break out of this game we cannot win is to hear the voice of Jesus call us to life like he, does this, like he does this woman. Remember the verdict we passed on her? Neither do I condemn you. She's drunk. Not willingly. Into the presence of the Holy God on earth, her shame exposed for all to see, and what does she experience? Not condemnation from him, but the freedom of voice of His grace. Just like her, in a sense, we can think of her as a, as a grandmother in the faith. Just like she, we only gain the power to leave sin and selfishness when we hear the freeing word of God. The condemning word can only condemn, can only pass the judgment of death, can only counter the cycle of sin by destruction. But the grace of God in Jesus faces the sin of our world and the sin of our own hearts with freedom and forgiveness. A word that he can pronounce, not just because he was sinless, but because he defeated the power of sin on his cross and in his resurrection from the dead. Friends, that's much, much better than our flawed morality and our despairing shame. So, what do we do with this? What do we take away from this passage? A couple of things. The first one is this. Our calling this morning is to hear this passage and not just hear words spoken to a woman 2,000 years ago, but hear words spoken to us as well in the face of our sin as we are before God. What do we hear Jesus say? I do not condemn you. Sin destroys, tears apart. It's the worst thing in the world. But we can't deal with it by guilting ourselves into the ground. We can't even deal with it by exposing the sin of others, like the crowd here. Only Jesus can take care of it. And so, when we come before Him and confess our sin, we don't wallow in our sin. We don't wallow in guilt and shame. But we hear, "I do not condemn you." Go. Leave this behind. Walk in freedom. The second is this, or takeaway from this passage. As I said, we live in the Bible belt. And in so many ways, church people are the men in this passage. Church people are the folks that would have dragged this woman to front of uh, Jesus and called for her condemnation. These men were laying a trap for Jesus, but on the one hand, they Jesus to say, no, I agree with you guys. I agree with you guys. She hasn't come. But here's the thing the real Jesus, not the Jesus of our imagination who just confirms what we already like, but the real Jesus who meets us comes with a word of grace for all who come in And the call for us is this to not turn away from him when he calls us down from throwing stones. The men in this passage, Their hearts were exposed when Jesus said, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And in tragedy, they slinked away. They left. But as we resist the pull of of religious self-righteousness, let's not slink away from Jesus. And when we're called to put our stones down, when we're called to not condemn other people, let's rather stay and hear the same word of freedom that we want to back away, not to slink and prefer the game we'd rather play, but let Jesus explore the game that we cannot win, the faith, religion, the religiosity of this world, People are going to fail really big. In our families, at work, in our neighborhoods. people are going to mess up. And their shame is going to be dragged into the light just like this woman here. Our calling is not to gossip, not to whisper, not to laugh at her. Our calling is not to objectify people and treat them like an object. Our calling is not to condemn. Our calling is to hold the door of Say in this kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, you have a way out of this game that nobody can win. There's a love here that does not depend on you earning it. There is a love that will infuse every part of you who you are, a delight from the Father that is yours. We hold the door open. And we never leave this behind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your freeing words. That does not speak to us condemnation, even in the face, even in the face of our big, shameful sins being dragged into the light, but rather a word of grace. For those of us who have failed big time, let's hear that word, Lord. Not guilt, not shame, but the freeing word of Jesus, a love that will not let us go, that allows us to turn from the things that do not satisfy and turn to you. But Lord, Lord, those of us here whose sins are a little more prideful. Are a little less obvious. Those of us here who are really good at monologues. I pray, Lord, that you would expose our hearts as well, not to shame us again, and keep us from slinking away, but let us stay to hear the word of grace for us as well. I'm proud in sin matchless sin in Jesus. Amen.